All right, tonight, chapter 19, Neurologic Emergencies. We're going to talk about that and that. And I'll actually kind of stop for a minute, but we're primarily going to talk about seizures. We're going to talk about strokes, uh, transient ischemic attacks, which we'll talk more about later, obviously. Status epilepticus. Anytime you see status in front of something, any idea what that kind of means or alludes to? State of being in Well, it's just, yeah, it's prolonged. It's something's prolonged, so to speak. It's lasting longer than normal. And then headaches. Headaches could be absolutely nothing or they could be extremely life-threatening, just depending on what's going on. According to the National Center for Health Statistics, two of the top 10 causes of death in the United States were neurologic in nature, and I'm not sure why they picked 2015 to look at specifically. I would imagine that's probably fairly consistent through the years. Um, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States after heart disease and cancer. Where do strokes happen? If you had to just take a guess, you're looking at the map of the United States. Where do strokes happen? Southeast. Southeast. Pretty sure about that? Yeah. Out west, you say? Midwest? 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 Wisconsin. Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> but it just. Hold on one second. It's worth. Okay. So, seizures. Uh, what is a seizure? What causes a seizure? Shorts the blood of the brain. Could. What else? Erratic electrical activity. What else can cause a seizure? Brain tumor. Brain tumor. Genetics. You, now, I'm going to tell you, you stressed out if you have a seizure from it, but uh, I've been pretty damn stressed before. I felt like I was having a seizure, but maybe not. What else? What are some other things that could cause a seizure that, other than what's listed here? Okay. What would you say? Overdoses or the lack of alcohol could cause a seizure too, right? Really? Delirium tremens, DTs. What else? The kids, the hyper, hyper, uh, febrile seizures, right? Is, but that's not really from a fever itself. It's how fast the fever rises that causes that seizure. What if I tell you that some seizures are idiopathic in nature? What does that mean? Don't know why they have them. Don't know why they have them. They just have them. So, all right. Maybe she had epilepsy or something to begin with, and maybe it just, I, don't, I can't really explain that, but uh, she, uh, she obviously had a, a condition that pre-existed. I mean, that wasn't the first seizure she ever had, I'm, I'm guessing, so. Yeah, I don't know that I'm gonna be able to answer it then. Sometimes you shake real bad from anxiety, 
Altered mental status, AMS. If we say altered mental status, that's a common presentation in patients, and it, it kind of ranges from completely unconscious, unresponsive, to maybe just a little confused, right? Um, there's a wide variety of medical problems that can cause it. What are the correctable things? Low blood sugar. Low blood sugar. Hypoxia, that's right. Those are the two main ones, right? Low sugar, low oxygen. What, um, what are the two things that all cells require? Oxygen, sugar. The brain is very oxygen and sugar dependent too. I mean, it, it can't go 30 minutes without it, right? Like, like some of the skeletal muscles. Um, Possible causes range from alcohol intoxication to head injury to diabetic emergencies to a stroke. Uh, and again, that seizure, old buddy was having laying in that ditch after getting knocked off. And, and they never really talked about that in the episode. And I was kind of waiting for somebody to do that. They were focusing on that leg. And I'm telling you, it was jacked five ways to Sunday. But even in the back of the ambulance, he would answer questions, but she was having to ask him multiple times and his right arm was even still like jerking uncontrollably. Didn't get the follow-up to find out for sure whether I'm right or wrong, but he was building pressure in that melon, I almost guarantee you. So, uh, you know, and you have to keep put things in perspective and keep it in context too. Someone has a seizure disorder and you show up and they're seizing or whatever, even if they were involved in a wreck or maybe some stressful event or whatever, that might be just what it is because of their history, right? But if there's no seizure disorder, they've been involved in some sort of accident, maybe took a blow to the head, and now they're seizing, that tells you something altogether different. You have to pay attention to those things. Uh, I think I skipped one, yeah. Maybe I skipped another one, yeah. The nervous system is the most complex organ system within the human body. Uh, you have your central nervous system, right? What makes up the central nervous system? Brain and spinal cord, and they are encapsulated by what? The brain and spinal cord are encapsulated inside of the... The meninges. The meningeal layers, the three... Meningeal layers, what are they? The piamator, duramator, the arachnoid. And what's that space right underneath the arachnoid called? Subarachnoid space. And what is produced and reabsorbed into the human body in the subarachnoid space? Cerebrospinal fluid. And I gave y'all another name for the subarachnoid space. I said, if registry says this, they're just trying to trick you. But the subarachnoid space is also called the blank of the brain. Anybody remember? Sounds like something in the heart. The ventricles. It's the ventricles of the brain is another way of saying subarachnoid space. Because ventricle actually just means space. I think pretty close to that.
So the brain and spinal cord make up the central nervous system. Then the rest of the nerves, your, your sensory nerves, your motor nerves, all those make up your peripheral nervous system, right? And what's a subcomponent or a sub part, if you will, of the peripheral nervous system that we talked about, the part that handles the bodily functions that you don't really have conscious control over? Autonomic, Autonomic nervous system. And that's even subdivided again, right? Sympathetic and parasympathetic. And what did we say? If there's a sympathetic response to the autonomic nervous system, you're doing what to body processes? Speeding them up. Do you remember what the chemical neurotransmitter is that innervates the sympathetic nervous system? Epinephrine, Epinephrine and norepinephrine. Okay, so parasympathetic does what? Slows, slows things down. And what's the chemical neurotransmitter for that? Acetylcholine and acetylcholinesterase. Just a little review. Let me see, we already talked about that. Central peripheral. All right, so what, what's this, this thing right here called? All of it, though. The brain stem, and it's made up of three parts, the medulla, the pons, and the one in the middle. Midbrain. It's the midbrain and pons, midbrain, medulla. Then you've got the cerebrum, which is the left and right hemisphere. Or the, the gray matter, the biggest part of the brain. Then you've got the outpocketing of brain that's posterior to the spinal cord called the cerebellum. And I told you that the cerebellum was sometimes called the athlete's brain because it, co it does what? Handles muscular coordination and things of that nature. And the thalamus and the hypothalamus are located where? It's not on this picture. Well, it is, but it's not labeled on this picture. The red in the middle. You talking about that? So the thalamus and the hypothalamus are located right there. We agree? Yes. So what's that red area right there in the middle called? It has a name. That is the diencephalon. The diencephalon. Mm -hmm. So what does the brain stem do for us? What does it control? Breathing. 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 Blood pressure. The basic functions of life, right? Breathing, blood pressure, swallowing, pupil constriction also. So if you take a medication that is a central nervous system depressant, how might that patient present to you? Slower speech. I say they've taken too much. 
of a central nervous system depressant, how would they present? Would they be have difficulty breathing or or they'd be breathing maybe like two times a minute or maybe not breathing at all, depending on how much they've taken, right? Because if it's a central, and obviously I'm talking about a narcotic, right? It, which is a central nervous system depressant. So it's gonna slow all this down or reduce all of this. It might not be breathing at all or maybe breathing two times a minute. What's well, probably the blood pressure gonna be looking like? going to be reduced, they're going to be hypotensive, things of that nature. So, but that's not the purpose of this lecture, but just it's common sense if there's part of the body that does something for us and then that part of the body is affected in some fashion, well then obviously the functions thereof will be affected as well. Alright, so who remembers uh, how all this works with the spinal cord. How long is the average spinal cord to begin with for an adult? About 18 inches, right? Because I pulled Mac up here and I took this tape measure right here and I did 18 inches on his back. So your peripheral nerve, uh, peripheral nerves, peripheral nervous system, you have, you have sensory nerves, detects things about the environment, picks up the, these little cues, sends it to the spinal cord, it goes up the ascending tract of the spinal cord where the brain like decodes whatever that signal is, whatever that sensation that, that, that the sensory nerves picked up, then sends a signal back down the descending tract, then back out the motor nerves, which causes you to <coughs> let go of that bottle because it's freezing cold or whatever you need to do based on whatever signal has been picked up. And what's the name of the hole that's in the occipital bone that the spinal cord passes through in the brainstem? Ah, quick. And as far as this goes, the neurons, you know, registry may, may ask you about the dendrites or the little fingers out here and the axons. And what exactly is a synapse? Yeah, but it's, a, it's those microscopic spaces between the dendrites of this neuron and the next one. And whatever the, whatever the chemical neurotransmitter is that's causing a signal to be passed from, from one neuron to the other, when it hops those synapses and travels on, that is how the signal travels down a nerve. And that's really all you need to know about that. Many different disorders may cause neurologic symptoms uh, and affect the patient's level of consciousness, his or her speech, voluntary muscle control. Um, what are neurologic symptoms? Just that term, what are some things that would be considered a neurologic symptom or even a sign? Do I? Okay. Headache, altered mental status, pupils might be unequal or sluggish or maybe they don't react at all. What about unequal grip strengths? Do you think that would be a neurologic sign? Or 
maybe a negative Babinski's if they're unconscious? If you wreck the foot and it, they don't push like a gas pedal, would that be a neurologic sign? Why do you, when you do grip strengths, obviously I'm talking about somebody that's probably injured at this point, but if you ask somebody, or, or possibly having a stroke, squeeze both of my hands as hard as you can. Why do you have them squeeze both of them at the same time? See if there's a difference, that's correct, okay? Some people, or well, most people are a little bit stronger in one hand or the other, but it'll be a noticeable difference if there's an actual neurologic problem going on. So. And what, do you do that just once? That's just the baseline, right? Because if they have a, a neurological issue going on uh, and you get them to squeeze your hands or push against your hands with their feet because they've been injured, five minutes from now, you want to know that it's the same, right? Because it might be different, so. A stroke, what's the medical name for a stroke? as a cerebrovascular accident. That's a fact. And a CVA stroke, cerebrovascular accident, whatever you want to call it, how is that different than a heart attack? How's it do what? Strokes happen in the brain, heart attacks happen in the heart, right? But other than that, they're really, really, really similar. Um, there is an interruption in, in the flow of oxygenated blood. A, an artery has been blocked or, or ruptured, depending on what type of stroke they're having. And of course, anything downstream of the blockage or the rupture, anything that's not getting that oxygenated blood is gonna become ischemic but then eventually infarct, right? And once things are infarcted, there's really not much you're gonna do about it. Um, it. Says, do not delay your response to a patient with a potential stroke, because time equals what? Tissue. Every day, twice on Sunday, time equals tissue, that's just true. Without oxygen, brain cells cease to function and begin to die. When do they begin to die? How long? Six to ten minutes is when they, you, you just kind of know they're dead at that point, right? Zero to four, that's when you start getting into some uh, irritability because of a lack of oxygen. That's the, the ischemia. But they begin to infarct about six to ten minutes. And it's when they die. And they are dead and they're not coming back. Again, a stroke is interruption of the cerebral blood flow. It may be from a thrombus or clot arterial rupture, cerebral embolism, anything that keeps um, the blood from flowing is going to cause a stroke. And I do want y'all to make a note of this because this could very easily be on your registry test. Somebody look that up and tell us what a berry aneurysm is. B-E-R-R-Y. What's a berry aneurysm? Uh, 
Okay, is there a particular group of patients that are more subject to a berry aneurysm? So it looks like a berry on a stem and it's the most common type of aneurysm. Do I? Not if I'm remembering right. Young males? Necessar not necessarily male, but it is younger patients. Otherwise healthy, no known history or whatever. Unless somebody finds something that tells me I'm wrong, I think I'm right. But it's the most common. You did read that? Yes. Okay. All right. All right, there's two types of strokes. You have ischemic strokes, which is a blockage, and then you have hemorrhagic strokes. What do you think the problem is there? Bleeding. They're bleeding. Ischemic strokes, that's blood vessel is blocked, so tissue downstream of the blockage is being denied the oxygen. Uh, arthrosclerosis in the blood vessel is often the cause, a buildup of plaque and fatty tissue and things of that nature and it occludes the, the vessel. So between ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke, which one do you think is the most common? Ischemic, ischemic stroke. How, how often? What's the percentages you think? It says 87%. 87% ischemic. Yeah, the, the last edition said 80-20. But in this part of the state of Georgia, and, uh, and apparently around the country too, but I knew it was like 85, 86%. So 87% more likely if you're having a stroke, they're having an ischemic stroke, right? Um, but they have their own set of signs and symptoms. And you should be able to tell one from the other based on that. But um, ischemic stroke, loss of movement on the opposite side of the body if the stroke is on the right in the right hemisphere how would the patient present then inability inability to feel or use the left side of their body and it gets weird sometimes because if they have a large enough vessel occluded they may even have something called neglect if it's on the right hand side they could have left hand neglect. In other words, the, the patient will be completely unaware really that they even have a left side of their body. They won't even realize anything's going on. And if you're standing right over there, I mean right there, unless they turn their head, they're not even going to know you're there, maybe. It's possible. So, so if, this, if the blockage or the ischemic strokes on the left side of the brain or in the left hemisphere, how will it affect the right side? But again, like I told you a little while ago with the brain stem, you have to look at what the left side of the brain does and what the right side of the brain does, and that'll point you toward particular signs and symptoms. What part or what hemisphere of the brain controls speech? Right side. Huh? Right side. Had a 50-50 shot, man. So it's the left side. The left hemisphere, if the stroke is, is, is bad enough 
and in the, and in the left hemisphere of the brain, what might the patient not be able to do? Speak, they may be aphasic. If they can't speak, can't move the right side of their body, pupils are unequal, where's the stroke? Left side. All right, now if it's on the right side, they may slur their words, they may have something called dysarthria or even dysphagia. They can speak, but they have difficulty doing it. it might be on the right side, but if they can't speak at all, aphasia, it's on the left. Uh, cerebral embolism could block blood flow. Patients may experience anything from a few symptoms to complete paralysis. Now, I just said, if it's in the left hemisphere, uh, you'll have right side deficits. If it's in the right hemisphere, you'll have left side deficits. Is it possible to have a stroke, an ischemic stroke, and a pretty bad one, and not have that unilateral presentation? Where's the stroke? What's in the middle? Huh? It's on the brain stem. It switches in the center. They will become confused all of a sudden for no good reason and have an ataxic gait. They won't be able to walk without stumbling. Okay? Keep that in mind, though. Hemorrhagic stroke results from bleeding inside the brain. Uh, chronic, poorly controlled hypertension. Those are the ones that have that a lot. Let me tell you something, and I told you, uh, well, I tell you what, let's do it like we did, have done with other things. Uh, if you had to choose between hemorrhagic stroke and, a, and a, an ischemic stroke, which one has a slower onset of signs and symptoms, would you think? There's one of them that will complain of before they go unconscious, and these people go unconscious fairly rapidly. Which one will complain of the worst headache they've ever had in their life? Alright. Uh-oh. Yeah, they'll complain of the worst headache they've ever had in their life they will begin to projectile vomit and go unconscious. A lot of times these folks don't wake up. Ischemic stroke is going to be that they have that slower onset of signs and symptoms. It's when you're going to have the unilateral presentation typically. What else does your book say about signs and symptoms of an ischemic stroke? Pupils, right? Well, you always have unequal pupils when you get there. Just depends on how far they've developed, right? 
and where the stroke's at, right? If, it, if it's on the brain stem or if it's at the base of the brain, you may not have unequal pupils. What else? Does the book say anything else? Yeah, the unilateral presentation. I should have. Which would be the numbness, paralysis, unable to use, aphasia, dysphasia, dysarthria, depending on where it's at. Like I said here on the slide, hemorrhagic strokes, you know, worst headache they've ever had, rapidly decreasing level of consciousness, uh, very likely the projectile vomit, and it is often fatal. What are you looking at here? Anything inside of that cranial vault that takes up space that's not normally there is going to produce what? Pressure. ICP, intracranial pressure. That's a fact. And the neurons and the, and the, the brain and the, the, all the little neurological things that happen in the central nervous system, very sensitive to pressure. All right. Stroke, I told you a, uh, an angina is to a uh, heart attack like a TIA is to a stroke. I told you just now, actually. I don't think I ever said that before. <laughs> but what I meant to say is I told you there were a lot of similarities, right? And that's still true. Uh, an angina is chest pain. It's not really infarcting, right? It's ischemic. And if you rest a little bit, take your nitro, the chest pain will go away. But... As far as we're concerned in the field, we're not going to wait for that chest pain to go away, right? We're going to treat it like a heart attack and go ahead and take them to the hospital because we assume that it is a heart attack. Any ACS, anything that's producing that chest pain, we assume is a myocardial infarction. And what are we going to give them? Nitro aspirin and oxygen. And we're going to put them in what position? Comfort. Of comfort. Okay. A stroke or a TIA, if they're having these stroke-like symptoms, it, what does transient mean? Comes and goes. It kind of comes and goes, right? Ischemic attack. That is, it'll, it'll look just like a stroke. Maybe the unilateral presentations, maybe they have uh, aphasia, maybe they have dysarthria. And dysarthria is just, I mean, they're speaking but it's, to you, it's like gibberish. But they're making just sounds. They think they're using real words, but they're not. Uh, whatever the case may be, but then 15 minutes later, up to 20, some TIAs can last up to 24 hours. That's because some of those cerebral arteries will spasm a little bit and reduce the blood flow or restrict the blood flow. But then eventually they just relax and then the signs and symptoms go away. But we're not going to wait to see if they go away, right? A TIA or anything that looks like a stroke in the field to you is a stroke and we'll, we'll treat it the same way. Uh, a lot of times, T, I mean, just like angina is a precursor to a heart attack, a TIA, if they have TIAs, if they don't, if something doesn't change, they're eventually going to have that stroke. 
Has anybody ever heard of Bell's palsy? What does that mean? What is that? I know the mountain has uh, Bell's palsy from Game of Thrones. Okay. His face just all of a sudden half his face. One side of his face, right? That's that unilateral presentation. All the nerves are, are I guess the the nerves stop innervating the muscles on one side of the face. And it's weird because, like, if they smile, on, oh, they'll only smile on one side of their face. The other side just doesn't react at all. Um, again, all these are precursors to a stroke. Ooh. Oh, come on now. All right. Let me make sure I didn't. Why is this doing that? Quit! I'm facing. Alright. Listen, next time you give me something for free, make sure that you know, ain't gonna do it. I'll fix it. All right, signs and symptoms of a stroke, dysphagia. Now, that's a word slightly different. What does that mean? Difficulty swallowing. Dysphagia. Decreased levels of responsiveness, aphasia. Can't, can't speak. See, that's not a G, that's an S. Where's the stroke? Left side. Slurred speech, sudden and severe headache. Confusion, dizziness, and then uh, unconsciousness or coma. And obviously these are grouped and it could be uh, either the uh, ischemic or the hemorrhagic stroke that they're talking about. Left hemisphere problems may cause aphasia, paralysis of the right side of the body. Right hemisphere problems can cause paralysis of the left side of the body. And words may be slurred and or hard to understand and maybe they're not words at all. Maybe they're just sounds and they, the patient thinks they're using words. Uh, bleeding in the brain, intracerebral hemorrhage, um, uncontrolled hypertension of the patients that are more predisposed to those. And if they start bleeding inside of their brain, what will they complain of right before they projectile vomit and go unconscious? What happens to most of these people? Y'all stretch yourself. All right. So, conditions that may mimic a stroke. Things that will maybe cause unilateral presentations like your classic signs of a, a ischemic stroke may in fact not be a stroke at all. Hypoglycemia. So it's like the chicken or the egg sometimes, right? If you respond to a patient and you know they have a history of diabetes, but they're showing that unilateral presentation of not being able to uh, move or feel one side of the body or the other, 
What do you most what do you most definitely want to check on every stroke patient? Blood sugar. Blood sugar. Figure out what the cause is. Postictal state. If someone has a seizure, a generalized tonic-clonic seizure where you have that all over jerking of the body, what are they burning up when they're just doing this? It just really, really strong jerks over and over and over again. Energy. Which is produced by Seriously. and oxygen. So if they're postictal, they're real sleepy, they're hypoxic, the sugar's low, they may have this stroke-like presentation as well. Uh, what can you do to make those go away? Give them sugar. Give them sugar and oxygen. Now, is it a bad thing if someone's having an actual bleed in the brain? Yes. And you give them sugar. Is that a bad thing? Have all y'all ever heard of Star Trek? The, the old TV show. Yes. And and uh, Mr. Spock, what, what, he put something on somebody and the old Vulcan mind melt. Y'all remember that? If they're bleeding in the brain and you push sugar and sugar gets on the tissue in the brain, that's not good at all. Just like in the arm or anywhere else. So is it important to know what the root problem is? Oh, absolutely it is. Okay. Um, epidural hematoma, subdural hematomas, those are brain bleeds obviously because of the hematoma. But what's the difference between an epidural hematoma and a subdural hematoma? Of? Dura Mater. There you go. They're both under the skin, they both are bad. You don't want either one of them, right? But this is what you need to know. If someone has an epidural hematoma, it's probably due to an insult to the middle meningeal artery. So since it's an artery bleeding, do you think it will present faster than the subdural yeah. signs and symptoms? Yeah, because it's bleeding faster, it's an artery. But if it's an epidural hematoma, it's probably because the middle meningeal artery is leaking. Usually as a result of trauma, either one of them. And subdural and epidural bleeding, the onset of stroke-like symptoms uh, it's going to be subtle, but between the two, which one did we say is going to come on faster? The what? Epidural. Epidural because it's the middle meningeal artery. Alright. Seizure. Have you ever been sitting, like laying in bed about to go to sleep or sitting in a chair, whatever, and then your eyelid just starts twitching? Or the muscle in your shoulder starts twitching? What is that? But what is it? It's a very small example of a seizure. 
Same thing. It's erratic electrical activity. Sudden erratic firings of neurons. Now, obviously, that's... I'm kind of exaggerating a little bit because no doctor's going to tell you, well, son, that's a seizure. They're not going to do that, okay? Uh, but that's really what it is. It's the same concept. Um, how many different types of seizures are there? Sir? Seven. Seven? Name them. Oh, I'm sorry, not, not parts of a seizure. How many types of a seizure? Okay, well, go ahead. I'm sorry. Those are still phases of a seizure or parts of a seizure. Basically, what I'm looking for you to understand is you've got generalized seizure, which used to be called um, grand mal seizure. That's the all over tonic clonic jerking motion of the entire body generalized used to be called grandma then you've got um, another type that used to be called petite mall absent seizures they just kind of they just kind of go away for a little while they're sitting there talking to you then they just kind of stare off into space for a minute or two and then they're back right are there other types of seizures? Yeah. Partial? Pseudo seizures? What's pseudo mean? False. Will people ever fake having seizures? I'm sure. They do. Yes, ma'am. So when you like zone out, that's you having a seizure? No, okay. no you, can, you can get deep in thought and zone out. I'm not saying that's a seizure. I'm saying people who have these petite mal or absence seizures they will just, they're not really thinking about nothing. They just kind of go away for a minute. And then they come back. So. Are they aware of it? Yeah. Well, once, once it's kind of over, they probably are. During it, no. Oh, and just food for thought. If you're driving with a friend on Highway 16 East heading to Griffin, because at the time you go into technical college and sharing a ride with him, you don't want him having one of those, okay? I promise you, it's not fun. So anyhow, uh, petite mal seizures or absent seizures, generalized seizures or grand mal seizures, and then we said, what was another type? Partial seizures, pseudo seizures. Does your book get into partial, like complex partial, or does it break it down into that? Simple, partial, and complex partial. All right, so what's a partial seizure? What does your book say about that? Simple, partial seizure. Seizure. And how might that present? Then maybe, maybe they'll just have that jerking in one part of the body only, but they remain conscious, right? What's the complex partial? What, what makes... What the difference between a simple partial and a complex partial? They become altered, right? So, one of our past presidents had simple partial seizures, and it also will allude to the other name for simple partial seizures. Anybody have a clue which one it was? 
Who? Bush. No. Uh -uh. How far back? <laughs> <laughs> Way back. You didn't say Abraham Lincoln three times, I didn't? Said it, oh, okay. Andrew Jackson. That was the next one, wasn't it? Andrew Jackson. So therefore, simple partial seizures are called Jacksonian seizures sometimes. It was his right arm. He would be talking to people, then his just his right arm would start just jerking. But he remained conscious, having a conversation. That's fact. So, all right, so sudden erratic firing of neurons, patients experience a wide array of signs and symptoms when having seizures. It can be limited to one hand shaking or a metallic taste in the mouth called an aura, okay? They, they t these are the generalized or grand mal seizures here. They have something that tells them they're about to have a seizure. How many of y'all never witnessed somebody having a seizure? What am I gonna tell you to do? Go to YouTube and type in grand mal seizure and just watch it, okay? But they'll have an aura, A-U-R-A. It might be a taste in the mouth that they get. It might be that they start seeing halos around everything or they get a certain smell out of nowhere. Something will tell them they're about to have their seizure, okay? And then, um, of course, with the generalized or grand mal seizures after they have that they'll get into this they'll kind of maybe lose consciousness a little bit then they'll get into this tonic phase to where they get completely rigid every muscle in their body will just get completely rigid and then the clonic kicks in that's that alternating between contraction and relaxation contraction and relaxation um, and it's fairly dramatic if you've never seen it that's why you don't need to see it for the first time when you're back on the ambulance. Go to YouTube and watch it. Yes, sir. How do you tell the difference between a seizure and a muscle spasm? Oh, you'll you'll know the difference, buddy. I promise. Because muscle spasms are typically not going to lose consciousness. They're not going to foam at the mouth. Some of these people will actually bite their tongue, and chew on their tongue. Even I mean, it's it's fairly dramatic, and you'll you'll know the difference. Yeah, but that's just a very, 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 very small example of one. And I, all I meant by that was that's erratic firing of neurons. Okay. So technically, it could be considered a very, 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 very small seizure. But that, that's just me putting it in words. Ah. Okay, I was right. All right, generalized seizures, that's that tonic-clonic, formerly called grand mal, then the absence, petite mal's, pseudo-seizures, simple partial, complex partial. Does anybody not understand the differences between those types of seizures? And again, what's the, the main difference between simple partial and complex partial? They'll become a little altered. Common causes of seizures, uh, abscess, alcohol, or lack thereof, 
if they're addicted. Maybe they're born with them. Brain infections, brain trauma. Listen, if you again, you have to keep everything in context. You pull up to an automobile accident, you see the windshield spidered, and there's a dent in the windshield about the size of their forehead. They got a big hematoma on their forehead, and they're sitting in the car seizing. And again, there's still a little bit of that chicken or egg thing, right? Did the seizure cause the wreck, or did the wreck cause the seizure? But you know, if you, in those in the situation like that, you have to assume the wreck caused the seizure, just because of what you see, right? If you have somebody there that knows the history, you can ask. But chances are, it's that ICP that's causing that. Diabetes mellitus, fever, or that febrile seizure. A pediatric patient, usually up to about the age of six years of, of age, can develop a seizure if their temperature spikes really fast. You, it, it's not just that the temperature is high. They could have a 104 degree temperature and not seize. But if they go from 98 to 104 real quick, that's what a lot of times will trigger the febrile seizure. Hypertension during pregnancy, idiopathic, again, they don't know. And you can read the rest of them. Strokes, TIAs, infections. Importance of recognizing seizures. You need to be able to recognize when a seizure is occurring, um, has occurred. Now, you get dispatched to someone having a seizure. What do you think is most likely? That they will still be seizing when you get there? Or they'll be done seizing? Usually that's going to be the case. Unless they are what? Status. Status. There you go. Status epilepticus. That's... It's so sloppy you can't tell if I misspelled it or not. And you need to keep that in mind. If you get dispatched to seizures and you get there and they're already they're and they're still seizing, you know that's badder than normal. Okay? Even if they have a history of seizures. Why is it a problem if someone seizes for an extended period of time? That tonic, clonic, jerking, relaxing, jerking, relaxing, all the muscles in their body, what are they not doing? They're not expanding that chest wall, creating that pressure gradient, pulling that 500 cc's in, right? They're not doing that. So if they're seizing for an extended period of time, how hypoxic do you think they're getting at this point, right? Okay. And that's the real problem there behind status epilepticus. Um, Typically, though, when you get there, if you get dispatched to seizure and you show up and they're laying in the bed unconscious, snoring, maybe blowing bubbles out of their mouth, or not, when I say foaming, not like they got rabies, but they just have this foam coming out of their mouth and they're unconscious, they're, that's that post-tictal state. They're, they're completely exhausted, right? There's one poor kid on the west side of the county that I used to run to fairly regular that had seizures. He had them so bad he would both of his shoulders would dislocate. Every time he had them, he'd pow, just pop both his shoulders out. Wow. 
That's how violent these jerks can be sometimes. It, and it also should tell you just how completely exhausted they're going to be at the end of it, right? That is the postdictal state. Snoring, unconscious, maybe foaming at the mouth, maybe they're bleeding out of their mouth because they chewed their tongue, whatever the case may be. Postictal state, once the seizure has stopped, the patient's muscles relax, becoming almost flaccid. I mean, they are exhausted. They're tapped. They burn up all their oxygen, all their sugar. Uh, they may even, at that point, develop a stroke mimic as well, right? Either due to the hypoglycemia or the hypoxia, or both. Patient may be combative because of the hypoxia and the hypoglycemia, so what's What's the quickest way, what's the best thing you can do for them to one, to help them regain consciousness and two, to make that combativeness kind of go away? Oxygen. Oxygen is the quickest way. And of course, you're going to check their blood sugar. Of course, it's going to be low, probably. You know, once they become fully awake, then you can give them that oral glucose, right? But if they're unconscious, you can't do that because they can't protect their own airway. Everybody good with all that? Yep, it could be. All right. You can't get one like a Not yet. We're in EMT. We will definitely do that in advanced, but yes. You can also give them um, um, glucagon, an IM injection to draw sugar reserves out of the liver too. But we're not there yet. Causes of altered mental status, hypoglycemia, hop, uh, hypoxemia, intoxication, drug overdose, unrecognized head injury, brain infection, body temperature abnormalities. Uh, how, how many of those can you fix? It, it may be even temporarily, but Hypoglycemia, right? Hypoxemia. Can you do anything about a drug overdose? Yes. Narcan, if it's the right type of drug. Other causes, hypoxia, unrecognized head injury, severe alcohol, drug intoxication, and uh, psychological causes and adverse effects <laughs> of medications. What is syncope? So if someone is having a syncopal episode, what does that mean? It is a sudden and temporary loss of consciousness with accompanying, accompanying loss of postural tone. They're out, right? They just go out. Is feigning ever life-threatening? Could it be that they just got some unpleasant news? Or they saw blood or something and passed out. Could it be that they were bent over for an extended period of time and just stood up too fast? Yeah, we've all done that, right? Come and grab a hold of something. So, again, whenever you hear, respond to somebody with a headache or respond to somebody who's fainted, whatever the case may be, don't ever, don't ever assume that it's a waste of your time to go.
because it could be something life-threatening. It could be a cardiac rhythm problems, conduction problems. I want everybody in the room to write this down. And even though what I'm about to tell you is out of your scope of practice, even as an advanced EMT, but as a skilled and compassionate team member, you need to always make sure this happens. Elderly patients who fall from a standing position should always get an EKG. Now, why would I say that? Do what? Yeah, but why did they fall to begin with? Was it because of a cardiac issue and they got lightheaded, passed out and fell? Or is it because of that little yampy dog running around there or that, that rug that's rumpled up underneath their feet or whatever the case may be? Elderly patients who fall from a standing position should always get an EKG to rule out cardiac dysfunction. That may be why they fail. Because syncope, fainting, potential causes problems with cardiac rhythm and conduction. It's more prevalent in the elderly. Maybe it's a heart attack itself. Maybe it's hypoglycemia. Or maybe it's a vasovagal episode. Now, what did I say in English there? Vasovagal episode. We're going back to, to the 12 pair of cranial nerves, aren't we? The vagus nerve. What does the vagus nerve do? Are you guessing? I'm thinking I'm correct on that one. Okay. Well, how does when the physically or geographically or whatever you want to say when the vagus nerve runs at them cranial nerves run out of there the vagus nerve runs down and it runs down behind the esophagus so a vasovagal episode if someone like especially like elderly let's say maybe they're in the restroom Bearing down really hard to go to the bathroom, that esophagus pushes, pushes against that vagus nerve, could cause them to pass out. It slows heart rate. Bagel maneuver, that's, there's a name for it. If you have a patient that's really tachycardic, I mean, heart's bah, 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 just kicking, and you know it's going too fast, have them bear down like they're gonna go to the bathroom. It could slow heart rate because the esophagus will push on the vagus nerve. That's a vasovagal, not so much an episode because you're doing it or you're telling them to do it. Hey, but listen, put a little parentheses. You want to make sure you have an IV established first because sometimes what could happen, they may Brady just right on down. May, they may go into cardiac arrest. But that's a vagal maneuver. Tension headaches caused by muscle contractions in the head and neck and are attributed to stress. 
Migraine headaches are caused by what? Usually vasodilation in the head. Thought to be caused by changes in the blood vessel size in the base of the brain. Migraine headaches a lot of times will bring about uh, photophobia as well. Basically, light turns on. It's, it definitely ups the pain. I mean, you could literally turn the light on in the room and they may instantly start throwing up just because of the pain. Cluster headaches are rare vascular headaches that occur in groups, therefore cluster. The brain, the heart, are the two main organs that are highly sensitive to fluctuating levels of oxygen and sugar. And the brain more so temperature than the heart. Always take standard precautions, mechanism of injury, nature of illness. Uh, if nearest stroke center is greater than one hour away, request air medical transport early if available. Now I want you to write that down because that, that could be on a national registry test, but we're gonna, we're gonna talk about that. Wherever you go to work, you're going to have protocols that's gonna dictate how you handle things of this nature. Um, but you should make every decision based on what is best for this patient this time, right? That's not always going to be air medical, but that might be a, a, a test question right there. Um, hospitals, certain hospitals uh, have been designated as stroke centers. Words, they're equipped with uh, neurosurgeons um, and on-call docs that can be there in the emergency room in a certain amount of time. They have maybe, you know, uh, specialized equipment or what have you or systems in place to deal with the stroke patient. Um, so you always need to take them to where they can receive definitive care. If your local hospital isn't designated a stroke center, but the one in the town, the neighboring town is, you might want to consider going to the neighboring town, even though it's not necessarily the closest hospital, it's just the closest appropriate hospital because they can handle that, that type of patient, okay? Um, does your book talk about different treatments, different things they're gonna do in a hospital for a stroke? Okay. 
You've got primary stroke centers and you've got comprehensive stroke centers. And I'm just going to give specific examples like Piedmont Noon and Piedmont Fayette are both primary stroke centers. If you go there to their facility, they can push medications called TPA or Alteplase, whatever, and basically they can push this medication and if they get it soon enough and as long as the vessel that's blocked isn't too large, that medication can dissolve that clot and make that stroke go away. A comprehensive stroke center would be places like Grady, uh, AMC in Atlanta, to where they can physically go in there with this little device and grab the clot and pull it out, okay? Follow your protocols. It's gonna dictate where, which, what you're gonna do. Your local capabilities is gonna play a big role in that as well. Um, does you, I know your book should speak of a certain amount of time that a, a patient would be eligible for, for the, the uh, medications to dissolve the clot. The thrombolytics is what that's called. Because lytics means to destroy, right? Is it four and a half hours? It was three. Now they're pushing it out to about four and a half hours. Um, but just understand that. That's why last known well time is a very important thing to find out with stroke patients. Ask the family members, when did he start acting this way? When did these signs and symptoms start? If it's three to four and a half hours, and again, follow your local protocols, but they'll be eligible for this particular medication. Last known well time is very important to find out. And the hospital's gonna wanna know that, okay? Uh, also, how do we screen for strokes in the pre-hospital environment? It should be in your book. If it ain't in your book, your book ain't worth having. What can you do in the field to test somebody to see if they're having a stroke? Yeah. Huh? Okay. That's a good thing, but there's a whole stroke screen thing that should be in your book. It's the Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke screen. Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke screen. There's certain things that you'll ask them to do and say. What will you ask them to do? Smile. Show your teeth. All right. You're looking for that unilateral loss of sensation and movement in their face because when they if they smile and only the smile shows up on one side of their face, that's a positive indicator. What else might you ask them to do? Close their arms, put up both in. You're gonna grab both of their arms, palms up, and you're gonna hold them out in front. Then you'll just let go. You're not gonna tell them what you're doing, but you'll pull their arms up. Let's see, let's see your hand, Matt. Have them close their eyes, palms up, and then you'll just let go. And then tell them to keep their eyes closed, and if one arm just starts to go down, that means they're losing control of it. It's called arm drift. Okay? So if you have positive arm drift, that could mean a stroke. 
If you, if you have that unilateral smile, only, only one side of their face is moving, that's a positive indicator. Well, does the book say something that you might ask them to say? Yeah, but you can all, and that's what the book says, but uh, you can't teach an old dog new tricks is something that I've heard for 28 years, okay? But sky's always blue in Cincinnati, can't teach an old dog new tricks. It doesn't matter. It, it, these phrases will be a little difficult for them to say without slurring their words. If they're slurred, that's a positive indicator, okay? The book say anything else about the Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke screen? If one item is abnormal, then the probability of a stroke is 72%. There you go. Man, that just smells like a National Register request. Alright, I stopped on this slide right here because we're talking about transport decisions. What's this picture showing us right here? A position of okay, but I think it's something else too, probably. That is left lateral recumbent. It is, but what type of patient do you think that is? Seizure. Is that what the book says? Is strapped down? Why you say why Curtis? Why you say stroke? That's correct. That's probably a stroke patient, and why? Why is that patient lying on his left side? That's the side of the body that's affected by the stroke. You're supposed to do that because they can't feel it, they can't move it, so therefore they can't protect it. If someone's having a stroke, this doesn't happen in the real world, by the way. It doesn't. They get transported in Fowler's position, head jacked up a little bit, legs may or may not be flexed, it doesn't matter. But they're gonna be supine with the back of the stretcher pulled up at least 30 degrees because sometimes they have problems swallowing, right? And saliva may become a problem. But the book says you transport a stroke patient on its affected side because they can't protect it. Write that down, remember it, and then answer it correctly on the test and then forget it because that's not real world. Have you ever seen it, Cesar? No. I hadn't either. Never, ever, ever, and I've never done it. But Get your history, and again, you can see all these stroke mimics and everything else we've talked about. It's very important to, to know that history, right? Because if you know the history, the chronic, it's going to help you understand the acute. The secondary assessment. And a lot of times with the secondary assessment, that's when you go see those neurologic signs and symptoms, right? Can you squeeze both of my hands again? Oh, doing the Cincinnati pre-hospital stroke screen, you probably want to do that too. I don't think we said that a minute ago. Have them squeeze both of your hands at the same time too. Looking for those grip strengths. Reassess. If someone's having a stroke, how often do you think you should reassess? Every five. And not only are you looking for the development or the presentation of these neurologic signs, once they're there, you want to keep reassessing to make sure they're not getting worse, right? 
monitor heart rate, blood pressure, respiratory rate pattern, pulse oximetry, blood glucose, and GCS scores. What's GCS? What are the three things that the Glasgow Coma Scale affixes a numerical value to? Eyes, verbal motor. Eyes, verbal motor. Yeah, again, the dextrose, the glucagon, um, for hypoglycemia, we're not doing that yet. When we get in advanced, we will. But when we get to uh, the endocrine system and talk about diabetes, then we'll talk about the oral glucose, but we're not there yet. Hey. See? And this is what I was talking about a minute ago. You know, even though the book says transport them on the affected side, they're going to be supine probably unless there's some sort of spinal precautions that you have to take, maybe like that kid that pops out both his shoulders every time he sees us. Uh, head needs to be elevated about at least 30 degrees. Fowler's position, semi-fowler's position, you just need to make sure that their airway doesn't become a problem because sometimes it does affect their ability to swallow. What are you going to do for seizures? The, the grand mall generalized seizure, you walk in, they're seizing in the floor. What do you do? If, if they are still seizing when you get there, you probably do want to get a bag valve mask and try to force as much in as you can, right? Which is going to be difficult because they're tonic-clonic, right? But what will you not do? Don't try to restrain them. Don't try. It ain't a ride at Six Flags. Don't jump on. Don't put a spoon in their mouth. Don't do none of those things that you see. Huh? That's what they do on TV. Uh-huh. <laughs> when they're actually doing it, if they're if status, you need a paramedic to push some meds to break the seizures. You probably would just try to, back, and it's not going to be that effective. It's not going to be easy. Yes, sir? How do you get them to not bite you're going to have to stop the seizure. That's going to take medication. But you're going to clear furniture and stuff away from them. You're not going to restrain them in any fashion. If you can some kind of way put a, a, a pillow off the couch under their head or something so they're not hitting their head on the floor. I mean, it, it's pretty violent looking sometimes. You're not going to restrain them in any fashion, but keep them from harming themselves by moving furniture and things like that around. And again, for right now, especially if they're status, you'll try to oxygenate them as best you can. You're gonna need ALS care on scene. Paramedics gotta push some, some Valium or Ativan or something like that to break the seizure. But you know, if you see, if it's gonna be delayed and you see there's a need for suction. A lot of times there are because, I mean, they're looking like they're foaming at the mouth sometimes. You know, you're going to do your best. Sink will be passing out. Again, it could be just as simple as they got unpleasant news or it could be a cardiac issue, right? 
So all elderly patients that fall from a standard position get what? Headache. What are you going to do for those? Not if you get a headache. If you respond to a headache, what are you going to do? A lot of times, you're, when, when things like this, you're looking at what they call palliative care. Be nice to them. Make them as comfortable as you can. Uh, especially, if, especially if it's a migraine, there's nothing you're going to do in the back of the ambulance. But what do you think about them lights in the back of the ambulance? What might you do? Do you think you want to run lights and sirens and stuff like that? Just, just be nice. Uh-oh. I don't think that's supposed to happen. Was that it? That was it. All right, so I'm going to...